verse 18. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. In a little while, the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you will live also. On that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and reveal myself to him. We are about to once again witness a shift in that farewell discourse, a discourse that is being given by Christ, a discourse that is being given to his disciples, which is an insight, this discourse, into how they are to live, how they are to exist. Basically, what it is is instructions for life, the life that he is giving to those that are of him. And the general message is this. Stay the course. You have been with me up to this point, and I have cared for you. I have led you. I have spoken to you. I have instructed you. I have demanded that you obey me. Stay the course. Nothing is going to change, even though everything in your life is about to change. Nothing is going to change. This was their reality with Christ, their reality in Christ. Them being sent out earlier, them being given the privilege to partner with Jesus in his ministry was all preparation. It was all a dress rehearsal, and it's all about to go live. And Judas understood that there was something new afoot, which is why he asked in verse 22, Lord why are you going to reveal yourself to us and not to the world? Look at verse 22 again, guys. Most of your translations say how. The correct word there is why, not how. The, and the question that he asked, the verb that he used, why, and not how, is very telling. What? he is asking is why would Jesus want, desire, preordain that there would be a separation within humanity? Doesn't he desire all to come to him? Doesn't he love everyone the same? Isn't it unfair that some, only some are going to be able to see him and others are not? And isn't fair what God is all about? Judas wasn't asking or making the same sort of statement that you're going to hear from those that hold to, that say that man has what they call free will. The reason is because those people that say that humans have free will, they mean that God is not sovereign over their will, that somehow he limits his sovereignty over their will, and that their will is not under his sovereign control. Those honest ones, the honest ones that hold to this, they're going to confess to you that they don't know how the free will of man and the sovereignty of God work together. It just does somehow. But this isn't what Jesus said in verse 19. The world will not see me, but you will. And in 1 Corinthians 2.14, it tells us, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. And in earlier in 1 Corinthians, Paul tells them, For the word of the cross is, fully, or is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And back in, chapter, uh, back in verse 6 of this chapter, Jesus tells us, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And the clearest explanation of who can choose Christ, who can come to Christ, who is loved by Christ, is told to us in verse 44 of chapter 6, when he says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on that last day. Those that hold to the free will, they will say that outside of us being able to decide, to choose, we are nothing but robots, being manipulated by our maker, 
that God forces us to love him. And forced love, that's rape. But what they don't understand is that they don't understand. They don't understand life and death. They don't understand God or sin. They think that everybody is alive just because they're breathing. They think that sin is of little importance, and so is the sovereignty of God. They hold that natural life, this life, this thing, this breathing, that this natural life is real life. And because we make world choices in this world, in this natural world, we must therefore be able to do the same thing in the eternal spiritual realm. They either don't know or have forgotten that the Bible is very clear in saying that Adam sinned. And that since Adam sinned, sin has reigned in all humans. That's Romans 5.14. And that outside of Christ, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. Ephesians 2.1. And since we are dead, while at the same time making CO2, the dead that we were cannot be the same as the alive that we are in Christ. And because we were dead, separated from God, that's Isaiah 59 too, God has to be the one to recreate us, to make us new once again. And he does this amazing miracle through the Spirit regenerating our hearts, giving us new hearts, giving us new souls. That's Ezekiel 36, verses 26 and 7. And it's not done in the physical sense because we still have that same organ beating within us. This is all done outside of us, outside of the physical realm. It's all done in the eternal, spiritual realm. But once we are given a new heart, a new soul, then we will see the beauty and worth of the Lord, and we will run to him. We are not forced to love him. We desire to love him. We see our sins against him. We see his holiness and our wretchedness, and we flee to the salvation that is offered to us by the Father in the Son. Why will Jesus manifest himself to us and not the world? The answer that he gives to Judas is kind of shocking. And it once again highlights the essentials of being in Christ. Here is his answer to that, why. Verse 23, Jesus replied, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. The word that you hear is not my own, but it is from the Father who sent me. Why will Jesus only reveal himself to those that he chooses? The answer that he gives is love. Love from the Father. Love revealed in the saints through obedience. Love for the word that is given by the Father. The why of the distinction between humans is love. Isn't that shocking? And doesn't that just show us how off base we are concerning what love is? The Bible tells us that God is love. And the love that he shows us isn't just any plain old love either. It's the triune love of God that is manifested in those that are chosen, the called, the elect of God, those that have the Father, those that have given access, been given access to the Father, and those that the Son will petition the Father to send the paraclete to. This love is a personal love, a holy love, a rare love, a love that is so personal, so holy, so rare that it produces something within those that are loved. Something that the world marvels at, wonders at. Not because they're jealous of it, but because it is so different than they are. So other than they are. And the thing that it, this love produces is obedience. 
Love producing obedience isn't really a foreign concept, though, in the world. Because if you say that you love your spouse, more often than not, you're going to be obedient and being faithful to them. You forsake that type of relationship with all others. But the love that God produces within a person is different. In that, it is another. It is an other type of love. We love because we were first loved. That's 1 John 4, 19. And those that the love of God has been poured out onto, they do something that is completely outside of the realm of reason. They give. And the thing that they give most of is themselves. They obey the commands of God and love others. And Jesus was very clear about those that do love him those that have been given the ability to love him because he first loved them. Verse 23 again. Jesus replied, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. What in the world do you think that means? Where is the wiggle room to make you so confident that you get to decide to obey or not? Saints, if we are saints, then we must recognize that Jesus meant what he said. If anyone loves me. He doesn't say that we are free will agents getting to pick and choose whether or not we're going to decide to obey him. He doesn't say that we know what's best for us. He doesn't say that we have been purchased to be free agents. If anyone loves me. Me, he will keep my word. And you may be thinking, man, that sounds controlling, really constraining. But only if you do not value the extreme blessing that is given to those <coughs> that, they, that do love him, that do keep his word. The thing that only those that Christ will reveal himself to have what do they have my father will love him that one that obeys my word and we will come to him and make our home with him is that of so little importance to you think perfection isn't the standard here but is your life marked by obedience? Are you examining yourself, asking the Lord, examine me, see if there be any wicked thing in me? And let's be honest with each other. There is no way that you can continue living as you have been. As you walk in that door this morning and really be asking God to examine you. And if we're not asking God this, then are we truly keeping his word? And if we were not keeping his word, then do we in fact love him? As an added weight of the importance of keeping his word, he restates this reality in the reverse form. And then he seals it with the importance of it by telling us where he gets all this idea from. Verse 24, he says, whoever does not love me does not keep my word. Again, where's the wiggle room? The word that you hear is not my own, but it's from the Father who sent me. He brings his dad to bear. Don't believe me. Believe my Father. It's he who says that the proof that you love me is found in obedience. And it is he who sent me. Judas, do I mean that there is a separation in humanity? Do I mean that I do not love all the same? Yes, there is a separation, a difference. And love is the defining line between the haves and the have-nots. Those that have the love of God obey. And those who do not have the love of God do not love God, and they don't obey. It's as simple and as straightforward as that. And this, this, is the examining lens with which we must view ourselves. Precious saints, 
Why are we going to settle for what we have known? Why are we going to settle for a portion of the inheritance of being redeemed when there's so much more? Why are we willing to not strive after more of what we have been shown to be real life? Why do we not desire the more abundant part of that life that we've been promised? And if we don't, do we really even have the life part? The life that we have been shown before within those buildings that call themselves churches, the life that has been emulated before, that we've had demonstrated to us before as the normal Christian life, that is not the abundant life. It's anemic. It's boring. It's carnal. Let us strive for the abundant life. Because that's what Christ came to give to us. And it only happens through us esteeming him of the greatest value to us. Esteeming his church here of the greatest value. And it only happens when we get serious about sin and righteousness. And then verse 25 begins another transition in the thinking of Jesus. When he says, all this I've spoken to you while I'm still with you. He says, okay, you saints, those who I love with a rare form of love, you who are called, who are the elect, who are a gift to me from my Father, listen up. And then the transition begins in verse 26. And it begins with the word, but. But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have told you. The but of the beginning of, ver of this verse is a pointer to, a reason for, the thing that will make obedience possible. He's saying, I know that you don't understand that my going away is essential. I know that you don't understand that there is a separation within, within humanity. I know that you don't understand that the Father loves you or that he and I will dwell with you. But the ministerial office of the original paraclete, which is Jesus, is about to transition to the other paraclete who will come to mediate God's presence and personal instruction in their lives. And because Jesus is going, the Advocate, the Comforter, the Holy Spirit will no longer just be alongside of those that Christ will, will, reveal, will reveal himself to. He will be in them. Up until this point in the life with Christ, he has always said that the, son, the Father sent the Son, who is the original paraclete, as told to us in 1 John 2, 1. But here, in this transitional period, Jesus tells these men that the one that he will ask his father to send, who his father will send, will perform a couple of specific functions. But before we get to what those functions are, to what the office of this paraclete, the Holy Spirit, is, we have to make sure that we always remember who sent the Holy Spirit and that he was actually sent by them. The Holy Spirit is not a free agent any more than we are. This other paraclete is sent in the name of Jesus. The work of the Holy Spirit is rooted and grounded in the work of Jesus, just as the work of Jesus is rooted and grounded in the work of the Father. And he means for us to understand that just as he never stopped doing the work of his Father, the Spirit will never stop doing the work of the Son. And just as the Son manifested the Father to these men, the Spirit will continue to manifest the Son to them as well. This other paraclete, the Holy Spirit, will teach them, remind them of everything that the Son has taught them, has said to them, which Jesus has said were the teachings and words of his Father. Well, how does this truth line up with the modern evangelical understanding of the Holy Spirit? 
that one that is supposed to empower us to bark like dogs, to cluck like chickens, to quake and shake like a leaf on a tree, the one that is supposed to make us babble in in heavenly languages, the one that tells us that it's okay to interpret Scripture however we think it means. Does that description by Jesus line up with the description that we have of the Holy Spirit? Does it sound like the one that so many profess him to be? Does he sound like a free agent that he's going to bring about something new, something fresh, something different? Or maybe he has just decided that he knows best. The son, he had it all wrong. He may have been sent by the father, but he was wrong about what the father did, said. Do you think that's really a possibility? Maybe a probability? Or has God been maligned? Do those that say these things, are they following another spirit? Are they not maligning God when they say and do these things? Act like this? When they assign these actions to this other paraclete that has been sent by the Father and the Son? What Jesus is telling these men in verse 26 is this. Nothing is going to change. Even though everything in their life is about to change. And what these men could not have known is that the last three years of discipleship with Christ was about to be put into action. He had been teaching them, preparing them, loving them, and he was about to give them three specific amazing gifts all at once. And the first gift he's going to give them is himself. Up until this point, he's lived in selfless love for these men for three years. But that is nothing in comparison to the demonstration of love that he's about to embark on. When he lays his life down to purchase them from death, from hell, from their sin. When he reconciles them to the Father. These are what he has told us in verses 19 and 28. The second thing he's going to give them is another paraclete, which is the Holy Spirit. And that one will lead them into all righteousness. Does that sound like your life? Because it was not a probability. He never said that the Father may give you another paraclete, the Holy Spirit. The other paraclete, that Holy Spirit, may come into your life. Some, the ones that are radically saved, he'll come into their life. But the rest of you guys, maybe. Maybe not. But to those who are radically saved, He's going to bring them into all righteousness. He will make that available to them. Is that what he said? No. And then the third thing he's going to give them. He's going to give them the gift of his ministry of reconciliation. We get to preach the gospel. And the work of the other paraclete, the one that is being sent in love, out of love is summed up by Jesus in verse 27, which begins this way. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I don't give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Love brings peace. This is the effects of the work of the Spirit in your life. And this is what Christ saw as the effect of him sending the other paraclete, who would teach us all things and bring to remembrance the word of God. Peace. Isn't this the thing that every beauty queen professes as their desire for the world? Isn't this the thing that every world leader has been working for, fighting for? Isn't this what you desire in your marriage, in your household? Isn't this what you desire in your life? Isn't this what the 60s were all about? The problem is, just like with love, 
we have a bad understanding of peace. The peace that we can produce in and of ourselves is never really peace. It's a false sense of peace. And it's never really peace. It's just an end to outward aggression. It's a poor substitute for the peace that we truly desire. Which is why so many people find peace at the local dispensary. Just like the people who participated in the peace movement of the 60s, that's how they found peace, by altering their state of mind, by escaping reality. And their understanding of peace was severely lacking, just like the love that they professed was severely lacking, because the love that they professed was nothing more than debauchery. The truth is that people self-medicate trying to get to that place of tranquility, the one that they desire so well, trying to find peace through escape. And as a young man told me once long ago, he said of this verse, the peace that Jesus gives ain't no dime bag. What he meant when he said that to me was that all his life, he had tried to drug himself into peace. He had tried to drink himself into peace. He had tried to sex himself into peace. But it wasn't until the Spirit of Christ redeemed him that he found true peace. And it was completely unlike the peace that the world gives. The peace that Jesus gives only comes from and in Christ. And his peace is eternal. It's spiritual peace. It's peace with his Father. But to know that peace, you first have to understand that you are a slave, that you have been bought, that you must submit. Because he will require that you unload from your heart all the personal pain that you hang on to, all the trauma that has been in your heart, all the sins that you remember that you have committed, you have to unload those things because they are in his house. They are occupying his throne. And if you're ever going to ever really experience true peace, the peace that only comes from Christ, you must obey. And it is in this peace, the peace that only Christ can provide, the peace that he will provide. It is only in that that you're going to allow, that you will actually have your hearts not be troubled, that you will not fear. Because there's a direct correlation between peace and fear, peace and a troubled heart, peace and love. If you don't know Christ, you don't know his love. And if you don't know his love, his law, his word, then you will not know peace. And consequently, you will, not, you will fear and you will have a troubled heart. And this is the last word. This is the last time that Jesus will speak about his peace. He's already reiterated to us the command to now allow our hearts to be troubled, to not fear. And he's expanded on the meaning and reality of the cause of not having to be afraid. You must believe in God. You must believe in me. Which brings peace with God. When the other paraclete takes the words of the original paraclete that we have written here and brings them alive in your heart causes you to see God, to know God, to love God, and causes you to see the reality of who you are, a sinner in need of a Savior. So then you confess with your mouth and you believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and you're saved. But here's the thing. He didn't save you to leave you the way that you were. He will not leave you in that state. You are saved. 
Make no mistake about this. This is truth. This is reality. But there is a progression that happens within salvation. We're told of that progression in 1 Corinthians verse, um, chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. When Paul said, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand, and by which you are being saved. In that verse, we see three tenses of salvation. When he says the gospel, which was from eternity past, that's one tense, which they received and stand in, that's another tense. And then it speaks of the, um, the one that is saving them, that will save them. That's the third tense. Wait a minute, you say, I, I don't see a past, present, and future tense clearly there in that verse. No? Well, let's look at the golden chain then. We find that in the book of Romans. Grab your Bibles and turn with me to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. John, Acts, Romans. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8. Romans 8. I'm going to begin in, in verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to the purpose. Verse 28 says that we know. Who knows? Who's he talking about? Who knows? Those that love God. This is the same thing that Jesus is saying in, John, in those John 14 verses. And not fearing, not letting our hearts be troubled. When you know that Jesus is Lord, know that he has given you his peace. Then you can know that all things do work together for the good. And it means more than just your good. It also means that it works together for the good of those around you as well. Have you ever stopped to wonder why we're supposed to be part of a body? That when you suffer well within a body, your brothers and sisters here within this body, they are strengthened in their faith. They're built up in their inner man. And it causes them to love God more, to be more amazed at him. When you deny yourself, strive after holiness, you edify this body. You spur others on to righteousness. And this is part of those all things as well. But this, part, this verse is not part of the golden chain. That process of salvation I was just talking about. Although it is the effects of it. And it does speak of it by referring to those that know the things about God as being as actually referring to them as the called. But that chain, if you've never heard this before, the golden chain begins in verse 29 of Romans. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among the brothers. Here's the past tense of salvation. Long before you were a thought in the minds of your parents, long before this country was founded, long before God uttered those amazing words, let there be light, he foreknew you. He predestined you. But verse 29 doesn't fully explain the progression of salvation. But what it does do is explain the why of our salvation. Were we saved for ourselves? Were we saved so that we could find ourselves, be ourselves? What does verse 29 tell us? Verse 29 tells us that those that he foreknew, those that he predestined, were done so in order that they, that you, that me, in order that we could be conformed into the image of his Son. You were saved for a reason, for a purpose. You weren't saved for you. You were saved for God, by God. He foreknew you. In fact, we're told in Ephesians 1.4 that we were chosen before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless. And even there we are told that we were not saved for us. It was for the praise of his glorious grace that we are saved. 
Is, is this the understanding of your salvation? If not, perhaps this is why you can think that you can choose to obey God or not. Why you're unwilling to let go of your dreams, to let go of your desires for your life and allow God to direct you. Why you are striving to do it your way. I don't want to allow God to direct me. I can handle the details of my life and, and still be of God, right? Thank you, Lord, for your salvation. Thank you for the peace that you've given me, for the holiness in which you clothe me, for your spirit that you've prayed for me, the one that you prayed not just along to come alongside of me, to actually live in me. These are great things, Lord. But I'll take it from here. I know what's best for me. I will not submit to your will in my life. I hate the job that you've given me. I hate the life that you've given me. You think that you're saved for you. Even though you are reformed in your theology, not a semi-Pelagian who thinks that they are the master and commander of their lives. They think that they get to decide to choose God or not. You see the fallacy in that thinking, but then you flee against the command to submit and obey. And because of this, you live like a semi-Pelagian, deciding for God, conspiring against him to do that which you desire to do instead of living in peace with God and submitting to his will. But listen to the rest of the golden chain as explained to us in Romans, 30 verse, Romans 8, verse 30. Those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he glorified. So what does this verse tell us about our salvation? Who did it? Who caused it? What part do we play in any of this? But there's one part, one aspect of the golden chain of salvation that is not spoken of in verse 30. Did you catch what it was? Sanctification. Where is sanctification in this process? Isn't that a biblical term? Part of our life in Christ? Yes, it is. And yes, it is. But the reason that you won't find sanctification in the golden chain of Romans 8 is because every aspect listed there is completely monogeristic, meaning that it is all completed by God alone. God does them outside of us. And they are given us to show the how and why of our salvation. The salvation that saved us from eternity past. That's the predestined part. The salvation that saved us on the day that we repented. That is the part called justification. And the salvation that will save us for the rest of our lives. That part is called glorification. But where's the sanctification in all of this? Where does that fit in? And why is it not listed in the golden chain? The reason that it's not listed is because sanctification is not monogeristic. It's synergistic, which means that we cooperate with God with it. We cooperate with God in our sanctification. We do have a part to play in that. And we have to obey for it to happen. This is why Hebrews chapter 12, verses 11, verse 11 speaks of the discipline of God as it does. Listen to Hebrews 12, 11. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. Amen? But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Can you see? God will bring discipline into your life. This is a proof that you are his son. But not all that are disciplined actually learn from it. You have to submit to the discipline for that to happen. Then the discipline can produce peaceful fruit of righteousness. But are you being sanctified? 
Or are you just resisting the sanctification process because you think that you know what is best? You think that God has failed you in providing what is best. Is this why you're resisting? Saints, if you were to know the peace of God, then you must realize that you are saved by him and for him. You must see the love that he has for you. The love that he has given you. The love that allows you to be able to love him. And you must learn that you can trust, that you can trust that he knows best. And if you desire to be trained by his discipline, and not just discipline, you must submit your life to him. And then in our section of scripture, turn back with me to John. In our section of scripture today, Jesus reiterates the summary of his message so far. Beginning in verse 28. You heard me say, I'm going away and I'm coming back to you. If you loved me, you would rejoice that I'm going to the Father because the Father is greater than I. This is the going and coming of Christ that is the inauguration and consummation of the mission of God through the person and work of Christ. And he gives this as the reason for them to trust him even though nothing in the world would soon give them any reason to trust in him. He is telling these men who would have their entire world turned upside down, rocked hard. He's telling them, trust me, love me. And their entire premise behind their peace behind their ability to stand, behind their ability to trust. It's all rooted and grounded in love. And Jesus has explained to us what this love looks like within these verses, what true love really means. It's not that sappy feeling like you had the first time you had a crush on somebody. It's not rooted in emotion, in personal desire. It finds its roots in the person and work of Christ. It finds its strength in the reality of who he is and what he has done. This is why he tells them and us that if we loved him, that they would rejoice that he's going to the Father because the Father is greater than he is. How does that make any sense? Because this doesn't seem like it makes sense. If they loved him, that they're going to be happy he's going away. What is he meaning? How does this make sense? And how are we supposed to to apply this to our lives? What are we supposed to get from this statement? How do we make it make sense for us? We have to ask ourselves this. Has he not cared for these men for these last three years? Has he not given them the other paraclete to be with them? To allow them to know that he is God? Has he not allowed them to partner with him in his ministry of reconciliation? Has he not taught them truth, revealed truth to them? Has he not done the same thing for you and for me? It is the demonstrated performance by God that is supposed to make a difference. It is the reality of the essence of who God is that is supposed to take that demonstrated performance of God and turn it into love within us. He has given us himself. He has predestined us. He has chosen us. He has called us. And he has been faithful in never leaving us either. And for us, he's done this by giving us his word. And this is why the other paraclete will remind them and us of the truths that Jesus told them, the truths that Jesus heard from his Father, the truths that we have before us in your hands. But Jesus also knew the storm that was raging on the horizon that they couldn't see, the one that would rock these men to their core, that would shake them and cause them to run away. They would need to trust in the one that had sent him. 
This is why going to the Father is of the utmost importance. And this is why he says the Father is greater than he is. And he explains what he means by this in the rest of our verses from today. Verses 29 through 31. He says, And now I have told you before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe. I will not speak with you much longer, for the prince of this world is coming, and he has no claim on me. But I do exactly what the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Get up. Let us go on from here. Verse 29 speaks of an it. And verse 29 is not given to shame these men. Because when it happens, they will all fear. One of them will deny Jesus three times. The others, to one degree or another, will all flee in fear. Verse 29, he desires them to know that they don't have to fear. He desires to tell them how to overcome that fear when it happens. They must believe. They, just like us, must hang on to that which we know, which we have been given, which we have received. Because it will happen in our lives as well. We must hang on to the love of the Father, the love of the Son, the love of the Spirit. And then he tells them what this it is that is about to come. What the storm looks like that's going to rock their world. In verse 30, he tells them that the prince of this world is coming. That would have shocked them. The mortal enemy of the redeemed, their former master, he's on the move and he is seemingly going to win. Here is the importance of hanging on to the promise that he made to them back in verse 16. Saints, if you don't know this in your own life yet, there is going to come a time when it will happen to you. And Christ knows that. When everything in your world will be rocked, and it will seem like the prince of this world is winning. He told them and he told us how to overcome that fear. It is hanging on to the promise that he made back to them in verse 16 when he tells them that because he's going to the Father, he, because he's going, he's going to ask his Father and his Father will send another paraclete, even the Holy Spirit, the one that manifests the peace in the, of Christ in their lives. This is the second time in the, that Jesus has ever referred to Satan as a ruler of the world. The first time that he did was given to us back in chapter 12. And it was then that Christ, the original paraclete, first spoke of these men concerning, to these men of concerning the ruler of this world. When he said, now is the judgment of the world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up, will draw um, from the earth. When I, am draw, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. Verses 31 and 32 of John 12. And just like in the chapter 12 verses, Jesus tells these men now why they should not fear concerning their former master coming. Because he has no claim on Christ. What Jesus meant is because he is the spotless, sinless Lamb of God, Satan has no control, no power, no sway over him. Don't believe for an instant that Satan has ever had any control, any power, or, over, or any sway over God. He can only do that which God allows. Exactly how and exactly when God allows him to do it. The account of Job is a great illustration of this truth. But Jesus, standing here with these men, in his human state, was human. And if he had just one single molecule that was tainted by sin, then Satan could have laid claim to him. But he was perfectly sinless. So he was outside of the control, the realm and claim of Satan. 
And verse 31 begins with the word but. That but is there to highlight the reason that Satan has no control over Jesus. To highlight why the disciples should believe. Why they cannot let their hearts be troubled. There is one that Satan has no claim to. All others, all men since Adam, Satan could lay claim to. All had been or were slaves to this evil master. But there was one that he was never master over. One that he could never claim to, can lay claim to. And this one, for the first time, tells these men and us that he, Christ, this is the first time that he says this, I love the Father. And he even tells us how we can know that he loves the Father. How the world knows that he loves the Father. He obeys the Father. Verse 31, I do exactly what the Father, exactly what the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. And this is why Satan has no claim on him. This is the one thing that separates the incarnate Jesus from us. And this is why we have such a hard time obeying. It's the sin that remains in us. Can you not see, dear saints, why you must obey? How you have to obey? Can you not see how your obedience to God, your denial of self, your denial of the things of this world, will not only be evidence to the world that you love the Father, but it will also allow you to know the peace of the Father. It's this original paraclete who through obedience to his Father, through obedience proved that he loved his father. And it is he who is working hard, hand in hand, with this other paraclete, the one that brought you peace, that peace that passes all understanding, the peace that the world can't give. It's these that have given you peace with the Father. So, how does the world know that you love the Father? How does it know that you love the Son and the Spirit? Because you've said so? Because you spend an hour or two in this building on Sunday morning? If this is it, does it then is it any wonder that the world deems the church as non-essential? That even those that claim that they love the Father, the Son, and the Spirit all agree that the gathering of the saints is non-essential. I can just watch it on TV. I don't need to be with the saints. But this is this. What we're doing here is of eternal importance. This is of internal importance because we are the body of Christ. But how does the world know that you love the Father? Do you love the Father, the Son, the Spirit? Don't be fooled by those hucksters those scam artists that are probably unregenerate themselves and therefore don't know, don't believe, don't teach that it is your actions that prove your love. Not your words. It isn't walking down an aisle. It's not raising your hand, not looking at that false prophet that proves that you love. This is how Jesus concluded this section of the farewell discourse. What do you love? You'll know what you love because it's those things that you spend your time on. It's that thing that draws your attention, that holds your attention. It's that thing that you dream about, that you think about. Saints, my desire is for us, me, to know our Lord. Maybe for the first time in our lives. Don't just sit there and zone out. 
Don't just sit there and let this go in one ear and then out the other. How does the world know that you love the Father? Does the world know that you love the Father? Do you serve here? Do you pour into your fellow brothers and sisters? An easy way to determine that is to look at your phone record. How often are you in contact with a member or members of this body? And how often are those contacts, those interactions, about things that are other than the things of the world? How much time do you spend outside of this service on Sunday morning in service to this body? How often are you compelling others to come to Christ? How does the world know that you love the Lord? Does the world know that you love the Lord? You guys all know these people. Those who profess to know the Lord, you talk to them. You ask them if they know the Lord. They profess that they're saved, but they don't go to church. Those, or maybe those who profess salvation, but deny the master by, by denying his word. Kind of like that woman who professes that she's a pastor. I get to decide whether or not the Bible is true. And to those people, you rightly question and you even readily acknowledge that they may have made a profession of faith, but their life is proving that they do not have a possession of faith. Then what in your life proves that you actually have a possession of faith? Is it obedience? That's what Christ said. I want you to stop and consider your life. And not just your life, but also the lives of these saints living around you. If you cannot, in good conscience, say that others should know that I love the Lord, I love the Father because of acts of obedience, because my life is marked by acts of obedience, we have to ask ourselves, then why are we here? Why are we posing like Christians? If my life is not marked by obedience to the Lord, saints, confront me. I beg you, because this is of utmost importance, because eternity is at stake here. And if I love you, if I truly love you, I am going to confront you as well. If I don't see obedience as the mark, the hallmark that proves that you are saved, eternity is at stake here. But for those whose life is marked by acts of obedience, who imperfectly are striving, imperfectly, we're not looking for perfection here, per imperfectly striving to know their Savior. We will know the love of Christ. We will know the peace of God. And we will know that the paraclete has sent the other paraclete into the world. And the world will know that we love the Father because we're obedient. And I'm going to end this sermon as Jesus ended this section of discourse. Get up. Let us go on from here. We cannot allow ourselves to remain where we were. We need to be moving with the Lord. He's advancing. He's on the move. He's moving toward his Father, toward home. We must have the same goal in life. Christ desires that we have life. That's him. But he desires us to have life and life more abundantly. He desires that we know his love. Can you really say that you know the love of Christ? 
that you know his peace, the peace that he has given us with his Father. And he desires the world would know that we are his, that we love him, that we love the Spirit, that we love the Father. That's his desire for us. This is not a command to do something that is horrible. He desires us to know him. I look at my life and I know that I don't. I love the Lord imperfectly. I love the Lord like this much and I desire to love him more because he's revealed himself to me. Is this not what you want in your life as well? Obey. That's how we do it. Obey. And when we do, we prove to the world that we do love the Father. Because we, like our hero, our master, our Savior, obey. Obey.